Hello, and welcome to the Brew Theology Podcast. I'll be your host tonight, Janelle Apps Ramsey. Our subject matter for tonight is what God is or is not. And we'll be focusing on four words as we have this discussion. Before we get into that, um, I just want to remind you to make sure to look for us on Facebook and Instagram at Brew Theology and at Twitter at Brew underscore Theology. And then finally, before we get going, I just want to remind you that the point of Brew Theology, especially in the space that we're in right now post-election, is a place where we can come to the table, and while we may not find consensus, we can willingly come to connect over the same topic with other people. And we all come from different backgrounds, different places, uh, different opinions, but we're able to connect. And in a highly divided world like the one we're in right now, that is a gift. And so I want to encourage you that if you're looking forward to starting a brew theology, that you seriously consider that as a way to contribute to the ongoing needed conversation in the world around us. And I also would ask you, if you haven't seen it on the internet already, that you would consider getting a safety pin and wearing that as a sign to other people that you're a safe person, that you're willing to stand with them, defend them, walk with them, sit with them and be with them, and provide safe spaces for them. So I would just ask you to consider that, if that's something that you're willing to do. Let's get on with it tonight. We'll talk about what God is or is not. And thank you for tuning in. Welcome to the Brew Theology Podcast. This is God Is or Is Not. I'll be your host tonight, Janelle Apps Ramsey, filling in for Ryan Miller. Tonight I'll be here with several of my friends as we talk about attributes of God and how we see Him working or not working in the world around us. So as we get started tonight, we're going to take a moment to introduce ourselves and we'll share with you what we're drinking tonight and then also what our favorite fall food is. Um, If you're getting ready to lead your own Brew Theology group, Sometimes it's fun to add in something like that during introduction time so that people can get a sense of who each other is and just have a little bit of a lighthearted moment before the conversation begins. So as we get started, my name is Janelle. I come from the Church of the Nazarene. I was born and raised third generation, and uh, a few years ago we moved out to Colorado, and that was an opportunity to kind of move along, which we knew was coming, but... Uh, this gave us a, a better opportunity. And so now I would label myself as a progressive Christian. Uh, tonight I'm drinking the Breckenridge Pumpkin Spice Latte uh, Stout. I almost said porter, shame on me. Stout <laughs> with nitro in a can. It's amazing. You would love it. Um, and my favorite fall food is probably a pumpkin curry that I make that is also vegan, like many of my friends around the table tonight. My name is Piper. Um, I'm also drinking the pumpkin spice latte coffee stout, and it's really good. Um, Let's see. I grew up in Texas, and I'm now here um, in Denver. I am a student at Iliff School of Theology, getting my Master's of Divinity. Um, I'm interested in animal ethics and um, radical Christianity, and I'm also passionate about pastoral care. And your favorite fall food? Oh, I have to, I have to think about it. Um, I think I would probably say pumpkin pie. 
Just keep it simple. I'm Kyle Ramsey Sumner. Um, I'll actually start by saying that my favorite fall food is also pumpkin pie, so I'm <laughs> super stoked that I'm married to Piper. Um, <laughs> and I would, I guess I grew up in a small rural town, rural town in Florida, um, in a very conservative, fundamentalist Christian background. Moved um, pretty far away from that since that time, and now primarily interested in liberation theology, Christian anarchism, animal liberation, uh, process theology, a lot of different things uh, that I see connecting um, into something that is cohesive, that doesn't seem very cohesive to other people, it seems, at some times. But yeah, I live in Denver now, here, with all these lovely people, and I also go to Isle of School of Theology currently. I'm Baird Ramsey, and um, let's see, uh, favorite fall food... I was going to say pumpkin pie, but since everyone else is doing that, I also love acorn squash with some maple syrup in it. Oh, yeah. And uh, looking forward to having some of that soon. So, I grew up in the United Methodist Church, um, was in the Church of the Nazarene for a number of years, and uh, now post-evangelical progressives, I who knows what. I don't like labels. I'm the oddball out and uh, drinking... Celestial Seasonings, uh, Mandarin Orange Spice, tea. <laughs> My name's Dan Rosado. Uh, I was born in Puerto Rico, raised in the South as a Pentecostal uh, evangelical Christian. Um, it wasn't until college that I started reconsidering some of my childhood beliefs and became a Calvinist. And then I decided to move away from my Calvinist ways and found some beauty in the Eastern Orthodox Church, moved away from that as well, and find myself still calling myself a Christian, but heavily influenced by process philosophy. And my favorite fall food, I was going to say pumpkin pie, (laughs) but I have to think every time I do Thanksgiving with my family, we always have Puerto Rican food. So my favorite fall food is mofongo and pernil. All right. Awesome. (laughs) So as we get started tonight um, with this great group of people, we do have a couple guidelines that we observe when we're at the brew theology table. And those include, number one, that no soapboxes are allowed. No one person or viewpoint gets the last word. Number two, that we respect all others and their viewpoints. Number three, that we extend courtesy by listening well. And number four, that everything is up for discussion Overall, our our grounding rule is don't be a jerk. Um, And you can substitute different words in there if you want to. (laughs) Um, So we try really hard not to be jerk-like when we're around the table. So before we, as we get started tonight, uh, we're going to talk about what God is or is not. And this is going to, if you listen to the intro, we're talking about some of the ways that we have talked about God throughout the centuries. And Those include these big words, immutable, impassable, omnipotent, and omniscient. So as we get going here, I'm going to share with you the definitions. We're going to read a little bit of the curriculum for you, and then we'll jump into the discussion. And one thing to keep in mind, we're going to try to stay focused on each individual word, but very quickly you'll see how they overlap and impact each other. And so just be ready for that and kind of keep tabs on where we're headed. Immutable is the belief that God doesn't change. Impassable is the belief that God doesn't suffer or show emotion. Omnipotent is the belief that God is all-powerful. 
And omniscient is the belief that God is all-knowing. Immutable. There are several scriptures to keep in line with this, quote, orthodox label. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews thirteen eighteen And for I, the Lord, do not change. Malachi 3, 6. Clearly God does not change according to the literal readings of these verses. The Westminster Shorter Catechism states, God is a spirit whose being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Impassible. The conventional attribute of God's impassibility describes God as unable to experience any sort of pain or pleasure from the actions of another being, i.e. creation. Impassibility equals in equals not plus passibilis equals ability to suffer or experience emotion. To traditionally affirm that God can suffer means that God would be lessened and affected in a lesser way. As the logic goes, to suffer is less than perfect. Thus, God is transcendent in such a way in which God is unable to suffer. Omnipotent. Omnipotent comes from the Latin omni, or all, and potens, to be able. The Old Testament prophet declares God's sovereignty, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Jeremiah thirty-two twenty-seven. According to this divine attribute, God is able to do all things. The most influential theologian in church history, St. Augustine, wrote that God is able to do anything God chooses to do. According to Thomas Aquinas, omnipotence is all-sufficient power, meaning that God's power is limited according to God's will. Omniscient. Moving on to our last question that deals with the future. Does God know all things? Traditionally, Christianity speaks of an all-knowing God. Omniscience, in Latin, onis, all, and siens, knowing. Classical theologians believe that God knows everything there is to know, which includes someone's character, past history, feelings, thoughts, and future events. Of course, there is a differentiation between total omniscience, knowing all that can be known, with the inherent position which states that God has the ability to know anything that God chooses to know and can be known within a particular context. All right, so as we get started tonight, let's start with the mutable. And our first question is, is God the same in every way, shape, and form from the beginning to the end, or is there a progression of God throughout human history? Does God accommodate as culture changes, i.e., an eye for an eye versus bless your enemies. So let's start with just the first part of this. Is God the same in every way, shape, and form from the beginning, or is there a progression of God throughout human history? What do you think? I mean, isn't there, aren't there places in the Bible where God's like, oh, I changed my mind, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, like the one example of God's like, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And he says... No, if you can find 50 good men, and then God's like, mm, okay, I won't destroy it if I can find 50, and then it goes down until there's like one man, and then... So God was kind of like... I don't. I feel like God was being changed, maybe, or at least his, God's opinion or something was being changed in those stories. So if we went straight off of like scripture, even scripture itself kind of doesn't confirm that all the way. But then in other points, it does say God's the same, so... Right. So I think for me, I feel 
a little uncomfortable with the dichotomy that is being presented in the question. Um, and that if I, if I believe that God is always changing, then that's a constant. Um, and so mm. I, I want to say like, if I believe that God is love and God is always being influenced by the world, um, that that's, that's a constant that I can always keep in mind and always hold to be true. Um, but that truth is always a moving target. Um, that, that certainty, that absolute, that I believe that God is, is also something that is absolutely changing and most certainly changing. So it's one of those things I, I kind of live in both extremes at the same time. Right. I think speaking of, of dichotomies, it also seems that there may be different layers of how God changes uh, or doesn't change. On the one hand, we look at God as as constant and attributes such as God's love um, are a consistent theme that we have in the narrative of Scripture. Um, on the other hand, it, it Scripture seems to point to the idea that God can change um, God's mind about specific things or actions, etc. And so, are we talking about, on the one hand, God's character uh, is consistent, whereas God's view of a certain thing or decision to act and then a change of mind that he relents from that action, are those even the same thing? Yeah, because, like, you could say God is always loving. And I feel like I would want to say that. I would believe that. Um, but then does God always act in a loving way? Because then you could say, well, then it goes back to wouldn't every action that God does have to be, like, a solid action that God doesn't change God's mind about? Does that make sense? I'm not sure. What do you mean by solid action? So, like, God says, because I love you, I'm going to do this. And then you say, well, maybe you should do this instead, God. And God's like, okay, I will. That kind of makes it seem like maybe maybe God's, like, isn't working out of, like, love, but out of something else. Or maybe God's love is still kind of up in the air, like, God doesn't always act in this absolutely loving way, but then I also want to say that God is always loving. Does that make sense? So are you questioning his motive for responding to us, or... I'd almost say you've gone into the second question here of how does how do you reconcile practicing intercessory prayer if God does not change God's mind according to this conventional label? Like, uh, what I'm hearing you say is that I'm requesting something from God that, in his view, may not be the best choice for me, but he will grant it because he loves me, even if there might be other consequences of that action? Mm, kind of. Well, because what I'm thinking is, if you want to say that God is unchangeable in God's love, that God is always loving, then which kind of goes away from the idea of God being, like, like perfect or, like, always unchangeable in this other kind of way? But if you just pick this one attribute, like, love, 
um, then it kind of makes you wonder, like going back to the story with Abraham, when God is like, maybe the most loving thing in that moment was, I'm going to kill everybody in Sodom and Gomorrah, and then somebody convinces God not to. So then which was the most loving thing, to kill everybody or to save somebody? And so then that still brings into question God being all loving all the time. If you use like scripture and those kinds of like concepts that we have about God. I think that assumes that God is omnipotent though as well, which is something that we'll get to later on. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like assuming that God can act apart from human agency in the world. Um, right. Which then draws into question, well, if God does certain things, are those things loving? And if God does other things that we don't perceive to be loving, are they still loving? Um, is God a jerk? Like those types of things. And so I, I, I think that those two relate really heavily. Yeah. Well, kind of with what Baird said, um, some proce- Christian process theologians would say that this is where dipolar theism comes in. That's a big word. But it basically means that God has both a side that is un- unchanging and that God has a side. And I'm using side very loosely here. Don't. It's not like, yeah. <laughs> not literal yeah. sides, but God has a side that is very um, receptive to the world mm-hmm. and the world also loosely, everything that is. Um, so in terms of these unchanging attributes, there's God's love, faithfulness, these beautiful things that we see even in scripture and the Psalms, the psalmists talk about. And then you have the side of God that deals with what is in the world. And we could talk some more, but it requires us to talk about the other um, characteristics or attributes. Yeah, I want to hear people's thoughts on intercessory prayer. I think that's an interesting one. Well, if I, if I can, before we jump, I, the other thing that I hear in that question, that's kind of interesting. I, I have a friend that's, that's posited the idea that God approaches humanity uh, much in the same way that we would approach parenting a child. And God's interaction early in, in our world and history was much more uh, directive and parental. And then uh, as we have have grown, Christ came and has given us much more of an adult relationship to God. Uh, and that you could see that as a theme in the arc of, of the scriptural narrative. So I'd throw that out because that kind of sounds more like where that first question was going in some ways. Mm-hmm. Well, this idea of God accommodating as culture changes, moving from an I to an I, which was uh, putting forth a standard that was countercultural at the time, to then moving to bless your enemies, which is again another step forward away from where the culture was at the time. Um, I think we could make a an argument that God deals with us differently as we become more ch- more mature in our humanness. Um, not not discounting that we still blow things up. I mean, but that there, I mean, there is, there does seem to be a progression of God's interaction with us as we continue to become more formed in how we think and deal with the world. And hermeneutics play, plays a big factor in this, right? It's yeah. how we interpret, interpret Scripture. So when I read the Hebrew Bible 
and I see these passages of God commanding genocides implicitly or explicitly. Um, I personally, and I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but the way I read scripture, I tend to think of it as a early religious people projecting um, their culture yeah. on deity. And that definitely doesn't um, fix all the problems that you might run into in the Hebrew Bible or even in um, what we consider the New Testament. But that's one way to look at it. Well, and I think we can experience that in this next question right here of how do you reconcile practicing intercessory prayer if God does not change God's mind according to this conventional label. And the reason I connect those two is I think that in many of our churches today, we have some very like plain theology about how we feel God answers prayer. Um, and that reflects the culture that we live in and the time that we live in and the way that we um, kind of on, on its face understand how God responds to us. And so how do we maybe around the table deal with this idea of intercessory prayer and asking God to change his mind? Um, and does he respond? Um, some of the comments here in the curriculum say prayer does not change God, it changes me. I've heard that said. Mm -hmm. um, does prayer change God or just humanity? I think if maybe somebody, one of these process theologians here, could talk a little bit more into that, but I like the process idea of God is co-creating with creation all the time. And so even as I, maybe I say a prayer for somebody to get well, and my prayers can be heard by God and God can then um, influence as much as God has the ability in that person's body to create healing. But because I just can't go all the way to the other side where saying that God can heal these like miraculous ways because then all I can think about is all the other times that people have prayed and asked and God didn't answer. And... And so I think also the whole prayer does not change God, it changes me. It's comforting, but then when you actually, people are praying for healing and praying for all of these different things, and it seems like in the Christian realm, like there are people who say, oh, my prayers were answered, but then there's so many more other people who are saying, my prayers aren't answered, yeah. so what's going on here, you know? And that, can, that gets into people when they're trying to answer this question because it's so complicated, they try to do things like say, oh, you didn't have enough faith, or oh, that God works in mysterious ways, which that doesn't work for me either. It doesn't feel right. I think sometimes we tend to look at, at prayer in a, in a slightly wrong way, though, that we're, we look at like God is, is some sort of divine vending machine. Mm -hmm. And... I can I can be more comfortable with a, a traditional view of God intervening in the real world if we take it as something that is indeed miraculous and not something that if I pray I get it. And I think if we if we conflate the two, then yes, we have more of a problem here. Um, but I'm not sure that that invalidates. God having occasions of divine miraculous intervention. If I can be honest, this is probably one of the 
topics that I probably most struggle with just because if you're anything like a Wesleyan and you put a high value on experience, Mm -hmm. it kind of challenges any kind of belief that you might have unless you've had experiences of that feel miraculous or maybe it doesn't have to be so supernatural. It can just be um, little moments of grace or something like that. But there's a, there's a pastor in Kansas City um, that says that the primary purpose of prayer is not getting God to do what we want, but to be properly formed. It's kind of a different way of saying the prayer does not change God, it changes me, kind of. Mm-hmm. But I like the, the idea of prayer as formation. And from a process point of view, I feel like when I pray, if I'm praying for somebody, I'm trying to open myself up to be used um, or to make myself useful to somebody um, in accordance with what I think God is. With you know, If God is about love and restoration, how can I be that love and restoration for this person? And it's limited, but I feel like that's closer to my experience in reality. That might not be adequate for some, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to say that um, for me, um, going from a place of non-faith um, to a place of faith, prayer was an area I really struggled with as well. Um, but I, in finding process theology, found something incredibly beautiful in the concept of prayer through a process lens. Um thinking about God as God and creation co-creating together, um, that in each moment God is luring us or uh, pushing us uh, towards the most loving thing in each moment, um, that in each moment a new possibility arises to, to love, to care, to bring joy into the world, whatever that is in that moment. Um, and that when we pray, we're literally like almost tuning in, um, kind of entering into a space where we are more conscious of the divine um, and we're more conscious of the opportunities that are in front of us. Um, and I think for a, for a while I, I stayed in that, that space, which I thought was incredibly beautiful. Um, but then there's also this part of me that sounds really new age when I talk about the idea of quantum mechanics and prayer. Um, but the idea that when we, when we observe something and the act of observation changes the characteristics of whatever it is that we're actually staring at or observing, um, that the idea of collective consciousness and that when we collectively focus our minds and we pray about something that I really do believe things actually change. Um, whether or not we want to call that something supernatural or natural or just the way things are, I'm not, I, that's a discussion for another time. But I think for me, I find something incredibly beautiful and, and real, um, something contextual um, about prayer that I used to think was absolutely ludicrous. Um, but I really do think that when we focus our mind and our energy um, and our thoughts and prayers on something that there's a real possibility for things to change there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And for the, the last question of, of part two was, does prayer change God or just humanity? Um, just quickly, I, I think I would say that it changes both God and humanity. Um, I think my experience has been in the encounter of the other as I do something that I feel compelled to do for someone who's in need. I feel like that changes me. And I think as I closely align what I sense is God's will in my life, I think it opens both me and God to new possibilities. So I think that's a great jumping off point into the impassable, the belief that God doesn't suffer or show emotion. Because I think what I'm hearing around the table is that if we're talking about prayer, even in some of these new formulations, um, that God is going to be a part of that and that he can't really escape being changed by it. And so, to me, that implies, and, and maybe the logicians will get after me, that he, he does experience our suffering and, our, and or our emotion in the midst of that. And so, um, let's just, we'll move to the second question in the impass- impassable section here. Which aspects of the impassable attribute is a compelling argument, and which parts of this doctrine do you dislike or find incoherent, and why? Or we can go at it from the positive, how do you see God suffering and showing emotion with us, and how does that change things? I think one of the hardest things to reconcile about that is um, that that we call Holy Week uh, the Passion of the Christ. And how do we how do we reconcile the idea that Christ suffers, that Christ shows cries at the death of his friend and and you know Lazarus and all of these things that that clearly show God experiencing and reacting to emotion and if we hold that Christ is both God and man then there's there's at least a tension there if not worse well, I would say there's more than that. From a Trinitarian standpoint, um, they're a- absolutely God the Father has to experience these things because they are one being, and they are one being um, with different characteristics, different persons that we see moving in the world, but they are completely connected. And so for Christ to suffer, to be human, to have emotion means that God has felt and experienced those things as well. And so I think for me, believing that the Trinitarian doctrine opens the door for us to interact with God in a way that's very meaningful and real means that if we take it in all seriousness, we have to accept that God feels what we feel. I think for me, um, my theology is very relational. Um, So when I think about the idea of God and entering in relationship with God, um, it becomes really problematic when I think about a relationship where one person is completely unaffected mm-hmm. by the other. Um, I can't think of a single relationship in my life that is is like that <laughs> or ever. Um, my relationship with the world, even. I mean, the world is constantly changing. Nature is changing. I mean, uh, we're interacting with things that are changing all the time. Um, and so it, it's hard for me to even theoretically think about a relationship in which one party doesn't respond or feel any sort of response at all. And so I, th- I think with that, um, yeah, I just went blank. I'm sorry. It's okay. 
Well, I think in that relational framework, I mean, this this very much ties into the Trinitarian framework. I mean, it very much reflects what we see in God and in what we see in each other, that um, there's an interplay that happens, and we can't escape that. And that's going to form us, and it forms the person that we're interacting with at all times, and those things stay connected. And so we... It, it does make it very hard to to see God as completely unemotional and completely unaffected uh, by our lives if he's really living in me and present in me in a way that's very tangible to him through the Spirit. I, I remember what I was going to say now. <laughs> I was going to say that this idea of being in relationship with a God that doesn't feel or doesn't respond... Um, becomes really problematic and is really fleshed out like in um, post-Holocaust theology mm-hmm. with Moltmann and, and other theologians that talk about um, the need for a God who is responsive, the need for a God who is em- empathic. Um, the idea of experiencing um, that sort of pain um, and suffering in the world and that sort of oppression um, and knowing that God is completely unaffected by that, um, I think, does a lot of psychological damage um, and really challenges your theological assumptions that you kind of bring with you. Um, and so I think that's really interesting to think about in light of um, one's perspective um, in the world yeah. and one's experience as well, like um, Dan was talking about earlier. Although in the same way, wouldn't it be in some ways something that people could see as, as a ray of hope in that if we have angered or offended God, we we would prefer a God who is not in anger inclined to reach out and smite us. Yeah, I mean, I think if you if you believe that God was the kind of God that would reach out and smite you, then <laughs> certainly, yeah, I, I think any way to avoid that at all would be would be better than not. That's what I think. I the idea of God. Um, experiencing with creation and experiencing within God's self is really cool and a really beautiful idea and the idea that God can um, God can change and God can suffer. But then I think with like what you're talking about makes me think, I think that humans have a bit of a problem of putting human attributes on God, which I mean it makes sense because it's the only way we understand the world or anything. Um, but I think if you kind of allow there to be like a level of mystery of like we are never gonna understand God. Mm-hmm. Like if God exists, God isn't gonna. God hasn't shown everybody what God looks like, and this this is my personality. You know, like we haven't seen any of that, and so most of this is all speculation anyway. But I think remembering that there's something else about God's experience that and God's existence that we'll never comprehend it kind of um i don't know kind of makes all of this a little a little like blurred and kind of wishy-washy so i'm going to put my orthodox hat on and if by christian when i think of what it means to be christian i think it means to believe that jesus is the clearest revelation of who god is Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we see it throughout scripture in Hebrew scripture. We have this concept, I think in Isaiah, correct me if I'm wrong, of the suffering servant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the gospels, Paul or someone else makes that connection of Jesus as the suffering servant. And when I 
read some of the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the, the prodigal son, I see from these stories it seems like God shares in the joys and the sufferings of ordinary life. Mm-hmm. A guy loses a sheep, a woman loses a coin, a father loses a son, but rejoices when each of these are found. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when I look at Scripture, it seems like there is this radical relationality. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think I think one of the other things that points to is these ideas, as I understand it, were not necessarily the ideas that you had in Jewish thought. Um, they are later additions from Greek thought that were brought in, and so that also ends up challenging the very foundation of these words in that they they aren't native to the story or how how God's people would have understood them at the time of scripture and they may serve functions in certain intellectual frameworks but they may not be as good a description and i think that the next one omnipotence of uh, is really really struggles in the face of that the belief that god is all powerful um primarily because i mean just immediately uh the issue of theodicy comes forward of why is there evil in the world and why does it seem to reign unchecked in the face of an all-powerful god and then also um just just as we understand god and as we've changed as humans um we don't see that powerfulness, I think, acting in the same way that we might have in the Old Testament. We don't understand it the same way, and so it changes the way we react to it. Um, you know, we lived in Kansas City for many years, and so we all have prayed, if you live there, for the tornado to go a different direction. Uh, but what about the poor people that it hits? Did they not pray enough? And if God is all-powerful, why doesn't he just dissipate the tornado before it gets there? Um, and so I think this this is a value that very quickly starts to uh, be be a place where questioning steps in of what does it mean for God to be all-powerful? And so do we think that God has sovereign omnipotence over all creation? Is omnipotence compatible or incompatible with a perfect deity? What do we think? Or wherever else you want to go with this is fine. <laughs> We're in already, so. I find it interesting how how the question was framed. Um, Incompatible or compatible with a perfect deity. And it seems like the early views of perfection were very influenced by Greek thought and philosophy, where perfection was seen as, you know, by coincidence, the unmoved mover, which is impassable immutable right yeah so you know it almost seems like we can start with defining perfection perhaps or yeah i think i think that i'm in the same exact boat whenever we think about plato and aristotle and their understandings of perfection that were literally translated to like something that is finished or completely made um and the idea that well, if God is the creator, not the created, then that assumption is automatically problematic to begin with. Um, 
and then the idea that, well, this word that we talk about when we talk about perfection, um, that if God has power, God has to have all the power. And if God has knowledge, God has to have all the knowledge. And, and so, like, it, it logically leads to all the omnis that we're kind of talking about. Yeah. Um, and I think that if, if you don't start with the same assumptions as them, then all of these aren't necessary. And so I think when you kind of debunk this understanding of perfection, you have to kind of then ask the question, well, does God have to be all powerful? Does God have to be all loving? Does God have to be all knowing or all these things? Um, And so I think it really kind of takes you back before you even ask the question, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And the early church, I think they were doing the best they could with what they had. And this metaphysics was the best they had. But most Christians don't realize that this isn't, it's been so intertwined with theology that they don't know the difference. And I think we can question the metaphysics and even form new metaphysics and still have a deeply Christian theology. Absolutely. Well, and I think we can, our metaphysic can be informed by the Jewish metaphysic as kind of a balancing point to this very Greek metaphysic that we're trying to deal with right here. Um, so, I mean, in this omnipotence and omniscience, um, another question that comes up a lot in evangelicalism is, can God's power be resisted? And what does that mean? If he's all power, powerful, can it be resisted? I, mean, I, th- I think in, the, in like the classical sense, um, I would say no. I mean, if you think like, go into the Old Testament, like in Exodus, like Pharaoh tried to resist God. And so a bunch of horrible things happened to Pharaoh because God was like, you can't do that because I'm God. Um, so that's at least the kind of traditional, I guess, belief is with omnipotence. But I think in classical Christian theology, I think omnipotence by definition means that God's power can't be resisted. But it's kind of odd that even within classic Christian theology, you end up with um, the Arminian strand of theology mm-hmm. that believes in free will. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how they ever worked that out. I think that's part of the reason why I became a Calvinist at one point. I wanted to be consistent. And if God was all-powerful, then God was all-powerful. I don't know that that's necessarily the outcome, though. It's It's definitely a traditional way that people have have looked at it now, admittedly coming out of the Wesleyan Arminian tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you can also look at it as saying that God has has chosen to self limit. Um, God has the power, but has chosen to allow human agency and allow uh, us to make decisions and even to allow us to refuse divine grace, um, which allows you to get out of some of the problems that would come up in a Calvinistic theological position where God has to also decide who is and is not saved, um, unless you want to go with a universalism as a way out of that. But what's the benefit to God to self-limit? Relationship. Well, why would he want to do that? What good are robots that do only what you want? 
I mean, that kind of gets into, like, what's the meaning of life? You know? (laughs) But the Arminian isn't, like, if we believe um, that God created creation and then gave creation free will in order that creation could choose to love God, but then you're like, wait, why did God even create anything if God has the Trinity and so God has relationship, a perfect loving relationship within God's self, then what's the point of all this? And I think that's what everyone's trying to figure out. <laughs> well, but the, but the yeah. traditional answer to that is to expand that love. Ah, expand I mean, yeah. same reason that parents have kids. Mm-hmm. They love oh. each other and they want to pass that on. Are people having a violently negative reaction to that comment? <laughs> Babies. So one of the critiques to Arminianism, um, where God, or any view where that says that God has has the power, but God limits God's self, um, then you start trying to figure out where that line is. You know, why did God not intervene in the Holocaust? Right. You know, why did God not intervene in XYZ, name all these atrocious things that have happened? And that's where I feel like it gets very problematic. And then you have to revisit your omnipotence again. Mm -hmm. Well, and you have to deal with omniscience then um, that God is all-knowing. If he's all-knowing, if he knew the Holocaust was going to happen before it happened and didn't use his power to stop it, why? When I was a Calvinist, um, a lot of the guys that I looked up to and followed, and I intentionally say guys because those were the only Calvinist theologians, they, they would say that God always had a plan and that because we were limited humans and we don't see the big picture we don't see the other side you know if it wasn't for the nukes maybe the war wouldn't have stopped or something like that something something to that effect yeah god is the utilitarian in the sky who has the plan all figured out but we just don't understand yet yeah but that's not we're not projecting god into god's self there that's exactly how god is However, that's exactly what our first question says, is does God have an unyielding, omniscient plan for all events, humanity, and creation? Mm. That idea of the plan. (laughs) I would like to believe that God has maybe a hope for something, you know? Maybe that's what Jesus was talking about with the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. God has some hope for creation, in order that creation can create perfect relationship within itself. Um, but I don't know if it's like a, quote, plan in the maybe Calvinist sense. Like, okay, first this is going to happen for 300 years, and then God's going to make this happen. All in order that in a however long, you know, revelation is going to happen, and we're all going to get sucked into heaven or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. So I can't remember if it was... Robert Mesley or Jay McDaniel or anyway, there were, I remember reading um, something that I thought was incredibly beautiful um, about this in particular, where the author of the text that I was reading essentially talks about God's plan um, and God's love and relationality with the world um, in light of an improvisional jazz band when an improvisational jazz band gets on stage they 
might say, hey, we're going to play in a 145 or whatever. I mean, I don't know music theory at all. Uh, we're going to play in a B flat or something. Um, and then they start playing. Um, and based off of how they feel and what they think other people are going to do, they begin to improvise and kind of go along with each other. Um, and based off the things that happened previously, they begin to create spontaneously off of one another. Um, and it's a space where not one person is creating, but they're all creating together, and they're all creating something completely new. Um, and I, I really like to think about the idea of God's plan in light of something like that, where mm -hmm. it's, yes, there's a plan. The, the plan is creativity. The plan is um, to add something dynamic and creative to the conversation. Um, but that conversation is changing, and that conversation um, changes depend on the mood um, and depending on... Um, where people are at in that instance. Yeah, I've heard this musical uh, symbolism used in several different, metaphor, sorry, used in many different authors that are talking about it this way, that whether you're talking about a symphony or jazz, that there's this, this responsiveness and this changeability and then this co-creation that happens. And I think that that is a great way to talk about God. I think it really represents what new creation means for us. Um, and our last question kind of gets into that of what is your take on the idea that the future is open or partially open and that God relies upon free agents? Um, does that ring true to this, this group around the mic? Yeah, I think in light of what I was just saying um, with the idea of um, creativity, um, I think the future is 100% open. I, if I can add something that's not in the questions about omniscience. Yeah. I think I, the idea that God knows and experiences along with everything in creation, you know, from like, from like my brain or from like, I don't know, like the smartest person in the world's brain all the way down to like, you know, the little like, atoms like that make up that person's body you know all the way out however far along the universe goes that god is experiencing along with literally everything um and i like to think of that also that means that god cares and god experiences with us in every moment that god knows not just like not just that god knows that i was sad when my grandparents died but god felt as i felt god felt with me the grief that I felt. And I think that is one of the biggest things that when I think of omniscience, I think, yeah, maybe, I think, I don't know, maybe a different definition of all-knowing is that God is all-knowing, all-experiencing. And maybe not that God doesn't know the future, but God knows you. And I really like that. Yeah, for sure. Also, one thing I might add, I might backstep a second. Because um, I'm backpedaling now off the statement that I said previously, <laughs> where I said the future is 100% open, and then I immediately was like, oh, wait, I don't know if I believe that. Yeah, so, I was so, about to pick so, on you. So that. I, I want to <laughs> clarify by saying I, I totally think that there are things in the world that limit the possibilities that are presented to us. Like, I know nothing about flying. I can't walk outside and fly an airplane right now for many different reasons. Because it's, I don't have 
a flight license. I don't know how to fly. I don't have an airplane accessible. Like those types of things limit the possibilities that are in front of me. I know that's a silly illustration, um, but I I do think that there is a deterministic factor when we look at nature and things like that, that all around us, um, the, based off the ideas that we carry around with us, um, our location, our relationships, um, though all those things limit us in many ways, but also open us up to different things um, that we probably wouldn't be open to if we didn't have those relationships. Mm-hmm. I, I was going to push back on you and, and say that I've kind of been persuaded that that there's what you might call a soft determinism, that there are not only the things you've mentioned, but also the decisions of people around me um, that are outside my control. And those things have impacts on me. Um, you know, if someone decides to drink too much and go out driving, yeah, I know it's theology, shouldn't say it. But, um, you know, that can have a negative impact on other people that they have no say in. And so those things, there's a responsibility on the person who has the ability to make that decision, but those decisions can have impacts that tie other people in ways that they do not have any sort of uh, radical free will about it. Um, at the same time, I, I, I do like the open position that, that God is, is going with us and, and working with the world as it is and where it's going to give us his goodness and bring that into the reality that we have as we are willing to allow God to work through us and with us in those things. So Kyle's been holding on to a book by Hartshorn the whole time. Do you did you find a quote you want to share with us as we we finish up? No, I didn't actually. All <laughs> right, all right. I wanted to say that I I agree with Baird, especially on the soft determinism part, and that's so hard for me to say because I wish. But you know, so is life. There are things, there are inevitabilities to life. There's nothing we can do to remove ourselves from suffering, from death. Um, But when I think of all of our statistical probabilities of of things happening, the fact that there is something, the fact that we are an experience, was also probably a very small statistical possibility. But here we are. Mm -hmm. So there's always a little bit of wiggle room for something that we would call novelty. And uh, I guess there's some hope in that. That we would call novelty? Or that Whitehead would call novelty? We. (laughs) Whitehead and I are one. (laughs) (laughs) Abide in me. As I abide in Whitehead. (laughs) The heresy. Only if white had abided in Christ. But anyway, here we go. Ah, uh, <laughs> yeah, Paul. Um. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we have uh, dissected the immutable, the impassable, the omnipotent, and the omniscient. And uh, in good pub theology form, we do not come to any conclusions. So we would love for you to interact with us on uh, Facebook or Instagram at brutheology.com at Brutheology, 
or on Twitter at brew underscore theology. Please make sure that you comment and like our podcasts and uh, just let us know what you're thinking. And if you're ready to start your own brew theology in your town, then just reach out to us. The website should be up by the time you hear this. Thanks be to God. Uh, Everyone, thanks for joining me and cheers. 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 Is that the song?